Welcome to the Pirate's Eye Podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, fellow pirate of the class of 2010, and each month I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to chat about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. In this episode, I sit down with Scott Chesney, a world-renowned motivational speaker and life coach who has presented to more than 1.5 million people in over 40 countries. And of course, a fellow pirate. Scott is a graduate of the class of 1992. And when we say your life can change overnight, Scott certainly knows the meaning of that. After finding himself at the age of 15, unexpectedly paralyzed. He shares with us his journey of resilience, of healing, and ultimately of motivating others to do the same. Take a listen. Scott, welcome to the show. Hello, Bianca. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. I have to tell you that our pre-show call for this episode was such an energizing chat that I'm going into today's conversation with high expectations. Uh oh. <laughs> I always tell my clients, whether it might be my speaking clients or my coaching clients, is that I absolutely want to meet your expectations, but I also want to exceed them. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate that as well. Awesome. So, Scott, you are a world renowned motivational speaker, and I want to know all about the journey that led you to where you are today. And so, I want to start with. High school, Scott, the road that led you to Seton Hall. You hail from Verona, New Jersey, right? Go hillbillies. (laughs) Woohoo! And in high school, you were an athlete, a three-time athlete, if I got that correct? Uh, A three-sport athlete, yes. Football, basketball, and baseball. Three-sport athlete. So tell me about high school, Scott. What was that like, and how did those four years end up leading you to Seton Hall? You know, it's amazing that you bring that up because it just brings a big smile to my face because I just remember being like a a typical teenager. And I I don't know if there's a typical teenager today based on the challenging times we're experiencing, but I Mm -hmm. I was a carefree kid and I I was carefree mentally. I was carefree physically, emotionally, spiritually. I was just really, really living in the moment, not too focused on what had happened in the past and not too focused too much on the future. I was just really, really in the moment. And while I was a, a pretty good student, I would say like a, a B, maybe A student um, from time to time, but it, it was sports that so much of my life was revolved around. And it, it was just an amazing, I want to say in many ways, start to my life for the first couple of years until uh, my sophomore year in uh, Verona High School, in which the morning after a high school basketball game, uh, I woke up to like a numb big toe. Like when your foot falls asleep, those pins and needles mm-hmm. and thought nothing of it. 48 hours later, that numbness went up one leg, went up a second leg and left me paralyzed, unable to move and feel normally from about my belly button down to my toes. And I would find out weeks later that there was no accident. There was no injury, no trauma. I didn't get hit in that game. I didn't fall down a certain way. It was just something that was in my body since birth and could have affected me exactly at the time of birth. It could have affected me when I was 20 and or 60 or never. 
And so it was just my time, December 20th, 1985, and the blood vessels that were not the right shape and size had just burst and bled. And uh, the best way we describe it, it was almost like a sleeping volcano that just mm. um, erupted and it put pressure on my spinal cord. And again, it left me with paralysis. And so um, at that time in my life, it's just, I, I, I didn't see anything like this coming, nor did I think it was anything of any type of permanence. I just basically thought I was sick. Yes, I knew I was paralyzed, but I thought that I was going to heal and get better. And I'd be back on my feet playing basketball, football, and baseball again in no time. But hmm. um, that wasn't that, that wasn't in the cards for me at that time. So I, like everyone else who has some type of mobility disability, was told to um, kind of get used to living life uh, from a wheelchair. In many ways, I describe it as like a like a little kid again, learning to do things all over again, tying your shoes, putting your clothes on, just things that you kind of take for granted and you learned them already. I'm here relearning how to live my life this time without the use of my legs. Wow. Scott, I imagine myself at 15 years old and thinking about what I would have been going through if I heard that news. How did you bounce back, if you will? How did you continue schooling? Well, that was the thing. First of all, I'm totally blessed because the family and friends support was amazing. And I wish anyone that has any type of traumatic experience like this, any experiences, any kind of adversity has that friend and family support, which I absolutely had. And that included helping me to have tutors in the hospital because I, I wanted to get back to my life, even if it was by means of a wheelchair. And so that meant kept keeping up with my studies. And right. so um, I was able to do that. But you know, okay, it's, it's interesting. And this is why I know a lot of people talk about the stages of grief and the stages that you go through right. with regards to trauma. And while I believe in all of those stages, I don't necessarily think that they take, I know that they don't take place in the sequence or the order that some people might say they do. And for me at that time, I mean, you could just imagine that like it had to be such a traumatic experience and he probably got depressed and angry and sad and everything else that you could absolutely say was justified based on what I had experienced. But uh, it, it didn't hit me. It, it Like I knew something was going on, but it was almost like I, I, I thought I had a little bit of a break. And I don't even mean this like, I, I don't even know consciously. I, I just think like, there was so much attention that was placed on me, so much that I, I mean, I wasn't in any kind of pain. I wasn't struggling. But what I would realize years later, so I, I just really moved on with my life, had somewhat of a smile on my face. And I'll tell you why. Like, I didn't know this back when this happened. But in terms of the work that I've done on myself now, I realize that we can rewind the tape of our lives, go back to any moment in time. What we can't change it is that we can reinterpret it, we can study it, and understand it more that helps i believe in our healing process yeah and so what i ended up doing is like years later rewinding the tape and just closing my eyes and taking myself back to those initial days when i was in that hospital bed and i just remember moments of looking around that hospital bed and seeing family and friends because i had droves of people each and every day mm. and each set of eyes i looked were the size of golf balls with tears in them and I know that not consciously, but on the subconscious level where nothing is filtrated, I said, all that pain you guys are all experiencing out there is far greater than any pain that I can be experiencing. 
So yeah, there was stuff that was brewing inside of me, but I quickly shut it all down because I said, I need to let you all know that I'm okay, that I'm not suffering, I'm not struggling because I cannot deal with the pain you're all experiencing. Wow. So what I like to say is I, I, I shoved it down. I mean, I, I did have my moments. I, I, I leaked from time to time, but of course, the best way I describe it now is that, and we all have them and it's not to judge anyone, but we all have almost like imaginary backpacks. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do is that we put experiences back there and either they're ones that we've kind of worked through and dealt with and grieved and felt our feelings to the point where like, you know, they're memories and we, we kind of like carry it around and it's a lighter load. And then there are those moments that, you know, we don't fully address, we don't fully resolve, we don't fully like dive into that I like to say gets put in that imaginary backpack. And that's what weighs us down. It weighs us down. And for some people, it's eternity. And for other people, you know what, there's moments where we say, you know what, something's not right. Something's not feeling right. Something feels unresolved. And we kind of go back into the past and kind of help make sense of it. And that's what I did many years later. Um, through my travels is that I, I gave that 15-year-old boy, Bianca, every single opportunity to grieve over what he had experienced in terms of losing the use of his legs and everything that he had every right to feel back in 1985. Now in 1997, um, yeah, about, um, what is that? I don't know how many years later, I'm not even doing that, 12 years later, <laughs> I gave that kid uh, every single like opportunity took advantage of it to like get angry, get sad, realize what had been taken from his life. And so there was a lot of uh, grieving and a lot of healing that took place. And it wasn't like, okay, everything's fine. It's a constant journey. Mm -hmm. What I realized is that like it, it gets better as time goes on. So, and there's a lot of forgiveness, even of yourself that takes place. And as I share with everyone, forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. I will never, I meant my, my wheelchair is a reminder of right. to me each and every day of what I go through, but um, there's a lot of forgiveness for myself, um, mostly because it, like, I didn't experience anything like a, a traumatic accident where someone was drinking and driving and hit me and put me in this situation. Right. Uh, it, it was me and there's no blame on my parents for like, cause it was, it's congenital. There's nothing. So there's just an understanding that this is my path. This is my course. And, uh, I'm just going to have to live my life to the fullest, whether it's in this wheelchair or hopefully one day back on my feet. Right. I just love that perspective because I really do put myself in this, you know, mindset of what it would be like for me to go through this. And all I see is challenge. And I know that it was challenging for you, but every time I hear your perspective on your own story, it's, it's amazing. It makes so much sense that you're a motivational speaker because now I'm no, I'm, I am motivated. <laughs> well, Bianca, and I, I appreciate that. But if you were to ask me like a couple months before this happened to me, do I think I would be able to handle it? I would say, heck no. There's no right. way. I, there's, and everyone would say that. And so people like are, are somewhat amazed, but I'm amazed by what each and every one of us in his or her own way uh, experiences. Because there's so many things that I've learned and heard about through different people's experiences. Like I, I can never imagine that. But right. yet, as, I, as I've shared is that I absolutely unequivocally believe like we can create things in our lives, even like subconsciously. And, and whether it be illness, whether it be adversity, I, I absolutely believe that. And it's meant to teach us. We're meant to learn from it. And we're also, we have the absolute capability 
to heal ourselves, to make mm-hmm. peace with the past and, and to learn. But I know Bianca, every single experience, every single choice, every single event has led me up to you, Pirate's Eye, uh, right here. And, and so there's a part of me that's loving this conversation right now and any different choice, any different event or experience that I might have had wouldn't have brought me to you doing what I love most. So there's a part of me that doesn't want to change anything. Is it that straight ideal line to get me to where I want in life? Absolutely no. It's a, it's a crooked zigzag journey I've been on. And I think everybody could say, you know, it's a crooked zigzag journey that they're on. Absolutely. It's it's, just, it's it has really... loops and hoops and all types yeah. of things. It's like a little kid scribbling on a piece of paper, but yet here I am and still showing up for life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know what has brought us together too, and it's something I, I do love to talk about is Seton Hall, right? You're a pirate. I am a pirate. And I want to know what your Seton Hall experience was like. I want to, you know, kind of compare notes and I want to know how you got there. How did you choose Seton Hall when you were, you know, kind of in the midst of going through everything that you were going through, again, I'm surprised you were even thinking about college and making college choices because I can't imagine myself in that mindset, but you were and you did. And what was that process like? Well, again, I I wanted to keep up with my friends and I graduated on time. I was president of my class. And so the next logical step for me, I wasn't going into the military. (laughs) That that was not going to happen with a disability, nor did I want to get into the workforce and had any specific trade. So it it was college. And this is where there's the connection to paralysis. I absolutely, absolutely believe that my paralysis created the path towards Seton Hall. And the reason I say that is that uh, my father, who's no longer alive, he was the one, and he didn't say a lot when he lived, but when he did say something was usually quite profound, is that he had shared with me when this whole process began of looking for colleges and universities, he said, Scott, if you can like look closer to home and everything, I know that that would give your mother, not him, he would, never, <laughs> know it would give him, it would give your mother peace of mind. So right away, I was just like, like almost like done deal. Now, again, it didn't hurt that I had a girlfriend at the time who was still in my hometown. So uh, <laughs> whether it be my mom, my girlfriend, whatever it may be, is that there were things that were absolutely keeping me. But I only applied to one school, Bianca, one school, and it was Seton Hall University. And when I first applied to Seton Hall, now um, I had the grades, probably was their average SAT scores, um, but uh, my extracurricular activities were off the charts. And I just remember an interview, and during that interview, and it was Father Hanbury at the time, is that he had shared with me, he said, Scott, I, you would be awesome for this university, but I think you want to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so right away, I just said, well, you know what, when you're saying ideal, don't I, do I not qualify in some way? I said, no, no, Scott, you're the ideal student that we'd love to have here at Seton Hall University. I just don't think it's very wheelchair accessible for you. Now, mind you, this was back in 1992, okay. and um, there was still a lot going on with ADA laws and accessibility, especially on college campuses and older right. colleges. And Seton Hall um, is nowhere near where it is today with regards to accessibility, and nothing was had to be enforced. So I was basically told at the time there were two buildings that were wheelchair accessible, and um, both had like elevators. And that, you know what, if you really wanted to make a go of this, we could have all your classes be in two um, buildings. It was Fahey and also um, Corrigan. Right. So um, these two buildings would be like my home for the next four years. 
but I was also told that, you know what, you just need to prepare for the rest of the campus that wasn't very accessible. So I said, you brought up the word challenge before, and I did think it was a challenge, but I'm not one who looks at a challenge, Bianca, and says, ugh, like I can't mm-hmm. do this. I look at it conversely and say, what are you putting in my way? What are you telling me I can't do? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're just lighting a bigger fire inside of me to want to prove you wrong. So it fuels me mm-hmm. a challenge. And so I absolutely said, I, I want to go here. I was accepted. My I have such an amazing family through my Seton Hall connections and through um, just everything that the university has taken place. I will tell you, though, is that there were times where those elevators didn't work in those buildings in which they had a crew that was assembled, about five guys who would lift me up and down stairs. Wow. And um, also there were times where I had the typical classes in which, you know what, you had to get one class after another, but one was clear across campus. And I'll never forget, like, especially during like inclement weather when it was uh, snowing or freezing rain or something. And and everyone can who's been to Seton Hall can get a visual of this right where they have the pirate logo right in the center of campus. I remember one day going through there and just hydroplaning, skidding, and just clearing so many people out of the way yeah. because it was just like whoa, something something just happened. But I, I was like, I got to get to class. I got to do this. I got to make <laughs> this happen. So. Scott, you're telling me about your Seton Hall journey, right? And I am absolutely envisioning it. And I can't, again, I just can't believe that you're trekking across campus the way that you are at that time. And not only that, right, you actually then were trekking off campus. Because if I remember correctly, you had some internship opportunities. Talk to me about what that experience was like and how you got the internship that was close to the campus area, what that internship was like and what that challenge was like. Yeah, I I was a communications major in College of Arts and Sciences, and uh, I had a minor. I would find out years later, Bianca, that I was like six credits short of a double major with political science, but I don't carry grudges. I don't say what, and I never wanted to be a lawyer, so I didn't go that route. So communications major, and I just remember being down in the hallway and seeing uh, an internship posted. And it was something with regards to like serving as an engineer, helping out someone locally do a a local uh, radio program. Now, at the time I was on WSOU, uh, Go Pirate Radio, uh, 89.5, and uh, assistant sports director. And so I had a familiarity with, with radio. And so I saw this opportunity. I was like, yeah, this would be great. So I went in and talked to Professor Reeder, who was absolutely open-minded. But at the time he said, you know what, Scott, I only know a little bit about this. I know it's right here in South Orange. You know, all these older homes and everything. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be accessible. Um, I I absolutely think we should like venture elsewhere. And I said, well, I appreciate that Professor Reeder. So I'm in challenge mode again. I (laughs) I just want to explore this. So he's like, okay. Um, I'll go with you. We'll set up this uh, like appointment. And so I remember it was right down um, Center Street, not far off from the campus, definitely pushing or walking distance, however you want to call it. And I'll never forget, we were there and greeted by a flight of stairs just to get to the landing, to get to the front door. Mm. And so Professor Reeder looked at me, he goes, I, I told you, Scott, he goes, how can I help you? I was like, no, just sit back and watch because I'm going to have to do this if I'm coming here like a few times during the week. Right. And I, I transferred with my arms out of my wheelchair. There were about four or five stairs to get up to the landing. I 
pulled my wheelchair up to the landing, scooted up on my butt up to the landing, then pushed up as I have to do getting from the floor into my wheelchair. So now I'm at the front door. So I ring the doorbell and all of a sudden Adrian Berg comes to the door. Adrian Berg was a phenomenal host of uh, a show on WABC radio in New York City, but had decided in addition to that to launch her own program on radio that she was going to be doing from her house called Good Day USA. And she needed an engineer. Uh, I would soon become a little bit of a co-host because she would put speaker, she put headphones on me and uh, do a little chatting with her, which just uh, I, I love doing as well. But she came to the door and she just looked at me and she's like, um, she, she, so this is someone who's a professional speaker herself and she's tongue tied. Mm. My name is Scott Chesney. I'm here for um, the interview for the internship. And she's like, well, wait a minute. How, how did you get up here? And I was like, with my hands and my arms and pulling my chair and I explained to her. And she looked at Professor Reader, how she had made it. And she's like, I, I don't need to interview anybody else. I I, I, I want him. Wow. <laughs> so we, we get inside and now there's a huge staircase that's going up to no. it and being her bedroom. Now, I don't want anyone thinking it was that kind of like show or anything. <laughs> she had a newborn baby. And so what ended up doing is that I would climb up on my butt, leave the chair down there, scoot along my butt into her bedroom, get up into a regular chair. And I would have the headphones on and letting her know when we had to go to a commercial break or who was coming on as a guest. But I would actually, there would be times I would have her baby in one arm and I would be pointing with the other arm. Sometimes I'd even have the headphones on and doing an interview as I'm holding her baby. (laughs) It was just one of those experiences that I cherish, but it helped me so much to build resilience, to build um, pivoting flexibility, so many of these traits that are, are so important in this world in which, you know, what you might think you know what you're getting into and everything, but absolutely expect the unexpected and know whichever way this path is going, man, you, you have what it takes not only to survive, but to thrive in the face of it. I love that so much. These stories are just fantastic. So now, Fast forward, you graduate Seton Hall, you've been training for the world of communications during your time at Seton Hall, and you're ready to go into starting your profession. What happens? <laughs> well, to this day, my wife still thinks I, I, I should have become a broadcaster because that's what I was doing and everything. But in a way, as a speaker, I am a broadcaster. So it was interesting. I, and I, I look back on it, I'm like, why didn't I go down that road? And uh, I realize now is that I didn't go down that road because every time I did a broadcast at Seton Hall that I'd have all these people telling me how amazing that was, how wonderful that was. But there was a part of me that would always critique and judge and be in a place of what I didn't do. Hmm. And so I know I made that decision that to say, you know what, if this is going to be my work, I'm not going to be happy with it if I'm constantly critiquing. I mean, I'm all about constant, never-ending improvement, but if I can't enjoy the journey, which I wasn't necessarily with WSOU, what am I going to do in a profession? So I I think there was probably some fear of stepping into my power that was there as well. So I opted to kind of explore a world of public relations. Now, dear, dear friend who is a Seton Hall graduate as well and everything introduced me to someone in New York City called Robert Dillenschneider. And Robert Dillenschneider was president and CEO of Hill & Knowlton at the time, which was one of the biggest PR firms in the world. But he had started up his own boutique in uh, the MetLife building now, the old Pan Am building, 200 Park Avenue, and uh, his own little public relations firm. 
and they weren't hiring, they weren't doing anything, but this was like a favor that my friend had asked and he went and he met with me. So mind you, this man is gigantic and he's got a very <laughs> low voice. He probably should be on the radio, but very low voice, huge guy. And so I just go and I'm interviewing with him and he's asking me all the typical questions. We're having a great exchange. And he said to me, his last question was, Scott, what can you bring to this firm that no one has brought before? So I just went into my heart. I kind of, I'd never thought about this answer and it just rolled off my tongue. Bianca, I said, four wheel drive and a lot of determination. And all of a sudden his jaw just dropped. He hits his like phone, his intercom and he goes, Bob, get in here. And I'm thinking it's security. Like I just offended him and he's going to throw me out. He doesn't care that I'm in a wheelchair. I'm getting thrown out on my, you know what? <laughs> so Seconds later, as he calls him, the elder statesman, oldest man in the firm, Bob Stone comes in and he goes, Scott, share with Bob what you just shared with me. And I told him and they're cracking up and I start cracking up. And he says, Scott, you know what? I really like you um, and I'll be in touch. No promises or whatever, but it was within 24, 48 hours. He offered me a position, a wow. director of research, which I mean, this was all like, like the beginning of like the internet days. I, I can't even remember the systems that I was using, but it was a job that was created for me. And I know. So to this day, I wasn't qualified to do this. I had no business being in there. It was an opportunity. <laughs> I want anyone listening who says, you know what, whether you've been handed a job or an opportunity, there are going to be people that open the doors for you. And you could be offended saying, well, I didn't open that door myself. Or you can go through that door, shut the door yourself and say, you know what, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. And I did. And I worked there for about two and a half, three years. And still to this day, Bianca, while maybe there there was that initial feeling that I wasn't deserving of this to this day, because I left under my own terms for a, a better opportunity for me at the time, is that I still get a phone call from Bob Dylan Schneider asking me what I'm up to and if I'd be interested in like returning. I love that. Uh, I, you know what? Yes, you have to take advantages. Don't let your ego, don't let your stubbornness, whatever, get in the way. Someone wants to open a door for you, let them open it. You make sure it stays closed once you get in there. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So then you mentioned the last time we spoke that you also did some traveling and you've been to many countries around the world. And that's part of your journey to where you are today. Talk to me a little bit about that. So when I was in uh, the job that I left after the Dylan Schneider Group, which was the Bonacani Fund to Cure Paralysis, which is the fundraising arm of the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis, which is the largest research center devoted to spinal cord injury, is that um, I, I was out, I was doing a lot of speaking and things were going well, but there was still something that was missing. And while I couldn't put my finger on it, nor was I consciously thinking about it, is that this uh, mentor um, friend of mine who is just like a second father to me. And, and I, I share this because it's so powerful and it, it's why he's my greatest mentor. He's the first one who said, you know what, take care of yourself with the intention of wanting to help even more people in your life. Mm. And so I realized that he was in a great place with himself, had done a lot of work on himself to the point where he understood others better than anyone I'd ever seen by far. And one of those people he understood was me. <laughs> and he realized that while I was doing well and I was making good money and doing different things is that there was still something unfulfilled. Now, I know he what he's he was talking about now, talking about rewinding the tape of your life and reinterpreting things. At the time when he said, how would you like to take a trip around the world, all expenses paid, 
leave whenever you want, come back whenever you want, maybe study some alternative forms of medicine, complementary medicines that can help you and other people. I knew, but he couldn't. So the way he put it there, there was a resounding yes that came out of my mouth. My uh, jaw, my tongue almost fell out of my mouth. <laughs> but I, I know deep down what he knew was going to be a part of this journey. And it was that, hmm, that backpack needs to be emptied. Mm-hmm. And you need to make peace with your paralysis. And, which I hadn't done so, in 1994, Bianca had lost my father. Um, to a massive heart attack and didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to him. And it's one of those things, and I, I did want to touch upon it before, is that why I'm so grateful for Seton Hall University is that I commuted to school. Right. And I got four years, four more years to spend with my father and all the experiences that we had when I wasn't in school and I was at home living under his roof and having meals and doing different things with him. I am so glad that I made that choice to commute because I would live on my own years later down in Miami, Florida. So uh, anyway, getting back to that story is that I knew that Ray knew that I needed to make peace with the past. I needed to um, heal those wounds, make peace with paralysis, make peace with my father's passing, which I would end up doing on that journey. But I didn't know that. So if he had said that to me in the moment when he proposed this trip around the world and saying, I think you need to you know, um, make peace with paralysis and your father's passing, I probably just would have been on a defensive and saying, oh, no, I, I got this. I'm okay. Right. I'm the good. Way he put it with this other mission and agenda, which I fulfilled. It was just that, wow. Yeah. There would be some other real true healing that was going to take place in this journey. So I have now, so I took one trip by myself, went to 15 countries in 15 months, came wow. back. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I returned from that journey, but I was doing a lot of speaking and so forth. And so together with my uh, wonderful wife, who I met shortly before my first trip, is that we created a second trip, having nothing to do with the man who presented uh, the first opportunity, but going around and getting corporate sponsorship and saying, this is our agenda. This is what we want. And to the exact dollar, we would raise the amount of money that we needed to go to 26 countries in one year. Wow. So, uh, and it was amazing. So we intensified our research into alternative medicines. We discussed and um, did a lot of research into accessibility for people with disabilities. And rather than telling them that this is accessible and this isn't accessible, we would give people the lay of the land. Like, you know, if you're going to the Taj Mahal in India or you're going to the pyramids of Egypt, what is it that you're going to be facing? Like, are there steps here? Who to ask? So that each and every individual could determine whether he or she could navigate this rather than saying it is accessible. It's not, you know what, if you're like me and you see a good challenge out there and everything, you're not going to say anything's inaccessible. So we would lay it out for people and then did a heck of a lot of speaking during this trip, just trying to bring more awareness to people as to what's possible in their lives. And it was a fantastic journey. And uh, I still tell my wife to this day, because it was shortly before we were married that I said, well, this is going to be our honeymoon now. And I, I still think she looks at me and I say, no, 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 you still owe me a honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I no. Know. I know, I know. Now, Scott, speaking of family, talk to me. How many kids do you have? What's the family dynamic like? Well, I will tell you is that my names for them are M and Possible because doctors, in addition to telling me I would never walk again, told me that I should basically put a focus on adopting my own children because of uh, because of paralysis is that it probably wasn't going to be very likely actually a 2% chance of fathering my own um, children and being able to father my own children is more important to me than walking again. So I don't have to get into all the details, but during the course of my journey, I went from a 2% chance 
to a 55% chance. So again, one of those challenges, Bianca, keep telling me I can't do something. You're lighting a fire. So I'd be blessed. And I want anyone, everyone out there to understand I'd be blessed if I could adopt a child. It would still be my child and would love that child. But I something from a biological standpoint just was driving me on the inside. Yeah. So I have now um, an 18, almost a 19-year-old daughter. Wow. And I have a 15-year-old son. So my daughter's name is Nia and looking at colleges and universities and Seton Hall is definitely on that list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, doing that with her right now. And I have my son who's... Um, 15 years old. And I'm just one of each. I'm just like, I'm just amazed. And they're just uh, two blessings in my life who I learned so much about myself through through them as well. Parenting is like heaven and hell. And I just say it's (laughs) one of the biggest learning experiences. And I had someone in one of my audiences one time and said, you can't refer to parenting as hell. And I said, (laughs) well, isn't it? And so when I tell them that, I was like, you know what? I have learned so much about my life um, by visiting hell from time to time, whether it be paralysis, the loss of my father, and if parenting fits into that, in them in those moments, it can be challenging, absolutely. But you know what? I would never be where I am in my absolutely. own personal growth if it wasn't for my children. Well, speaking of challenging, you have two young young people, right? They're they're in their their teenage years. Such such a pivotal moment. And they're living through a pandemic. You're looking at colleges during the time of a pandemic. How do you, someone who's been through so many of your own challenges, how do you navigate that with them? Yeah, well, I, I always believe even during times of challenges is that uh, we, we lead by example. And I, I think some people don't want to always be told what they have to do or how they have to be. But if you can model your own behavior is that I believe on all different levels is that the people are attracted to that. People want to see what you're going through. And um, so while my wife and I are absolutely there trying to guide them as much as possible during unprecedented times, is that we know leading by example is that it's so important for us to uh, put our best foot forward. And at the very beginning of this journey is that, uh, I say this pandemic journey, is that I would be on the phone with many people who I coach and talk to through support groups um, who have disabilities and helping them to navigate it. And we all started in a way laughing. And I I mean this respectfully is that not one of us knows exactly what this virus is all about and powerful it is and how destructive it is. But with regards to all the things that like come into play and have come into play with regards to having to be resilient, having to pivot, having to adjust our lives, how to live with less, is that these are all terms that are used on a daily basis by people with disabilities based on what's been taken in their lives and knowing full well that, you know, we, we have to live with less. And yes, we're used to confinement from time to time and pivoting. That's something that we have to do every day in our lives. So it's almost like our disabilities have prepared us for right. this. And it's created a mindset. It's created a heart set. And I've tried to ex- extend those to uh, our children as well and letting them know, listen, this isn't easy and this is tough. And yes, I, I you need to feel your feelings with regards to the loss. And um, especially my daughter, who is a senior and so much has not taken place that we never thought was going to take place with her grade and just letting her know how much resilience this is going to build within her, how she's learning how to pivot and navigate and being doing some amazing creative things, but also realizing, and I want everyone else out there to know is that, again, it doesn't minimize what we're going through here, but just imagine like a year from now, two years from now, 
when we're experiencing some challenges in our lives is that while there's going to be moments where we think we can't go on, what we have a tendency to do, and I, I love doing it in my life, is that kind of rewinding that tape of our lives and telling ourselves, you know, when did we like get through other adversity in our lives? When did we say to ourselves, I don't think this is possible? But we did it anyway. And we said, if this is possible, anything is possible. I'm going to tell you right now is that this pandemic is going to jump to the forefront. This may be, for some, the most challenging times in their lives right. to the point where it's going to help you with everything moving forward. And you're going to sit back and I don't know, I'm hoping that people are going to laugh about certain things that they feel challenging in the future based on what we're experiencing now. But not only do I talk about this with regards to my paralysis or any other challenges in my life, but I'm talking to everyone who's listening to this right now, is that not only... Do you have an opportunity to survive this pandemic? But you do have an opportunity to thrive in the face of it. And I absolutely believe that this is one of the blessings in disguise, knowing full well that we can't change this. I wish we could go back and make like the pandemic never happened, but knowing full well that we can't change it. All I know how to do with adversity of any sorts is to learn something from it, to grow from it, and say to ourselves, wow, you know what? I absolutely, and I know it's going to sound weird, but I'm grateful for that experience because of the inner strength and the resilience and all the other things that this adversity has taught me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I think that those those are the types of words that a lot of people need, and especially our young people, but really everyone that's going through this. It's, it is a challenging time. And I agree. I think there are opportunities in here in which we can look at them and, and feel gratitude for them. And in this time, this is giving us an opportunity to have some programming with you at Seton Hall. So in the month of April, which is when this show will be airing, you will be participating in a virtual program. Talk to me a little bit about why you continue to have a relationship with Seton Hall and be involved in volunteer time. It is family. It's family. So part of being a part of family is sharing different experiences with one another. And every single one of your questions is connected to the last answer, which I love, is that last year, last April, a year ago, is that Ride the Wave was released. And Ride the Wave is a documentary about my life. Uh, it wasn't something that was even on my radar and thinking of creating, but two filmmakers approached me about it. And while it has something to do with adaptive surfing and the ocean and all the wonderful things that the ocean teaches us is that it's so much more than that. I mean, we are riding these waves of life, each and every one of us, the peaks and the valleys and no two waves are alike is that. So this film was released. It was supposed to go to film festivals and be premiered and then go on to the big screen. But because of the pandemic that we had to pivot. And so we were on a, a Zoom call and we were all just smiling because we all had the same idea. And it was basically like, there may never be a better time in our lifetime than right now to release this film based on what is needed collectively in the world with regards to resilience and pivoting skills and knowing how to overcome adversity and love and family. And so we released it via Vimeo. And uh, while there was going to be a world tour for this film, it's become almost like a virtual world tour. So I knew that Seton Hall being part of my family I wanted to be a part of this. So I, I wanted to do it in a way where it could be connected in the same month as a National Day of Giving, which is later on that month. But I, 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 what we've been doing with different colleges and universities, but also corporations and organizations, 
is uh, allowing people to have a virtual screening of Ride the Wave, which is an hour long documentary. And as I told the filmmakers when they first approached me is that I will do this under one condition in terms of agreeing to this film. And I said anything. And I said, as long as it's done, as my speaking presentations are done, in which people are, yes, hearing my story and listening to my trials and tribulations, but they are absolutely plugging in their own lives and relating and connecting. And so uh, people have the chance to watch that film first. And so they'll have a chance to do that a few days before. And then I will actually be giving a virtual presentation, a motivational presentation on, uh, on April 7th. And then there will be a Q&A as well about the film, about my life, about their lives as well, just to heighten the experience of the film. And when I tell you is that this has just been works so well for people because they, they create family experiences. I meant the whole family. I've done this for like elementary schools. I've done it middle schools, high schools, college, universities, corporations. So everybody can watch this film, talk about it, kind of explore their own lives but absolutely take something away that will help them to live their lives more to the fullest. So I, I am super excited. Um, Seton Hall is actually in the film too. I coached at Coach Willard's basketball camp. And yeah, there would never be a documentary uh, about my life without including the great family of Seton Hall and how many blessings it continues to bestow upon me. I love that so much. So yes, We are going to share the information about that program in the show notes for our listeners to explore. And we'll also be sharing the information for what you mentioned, which is Seton Hall Giving Day taking place April 20th to the 21st. So we're very excited about that. Scott, I can talk to you all day. Let's do it. We do have to wrap it up. So before we do... Are there any last words that you want to share with our listeners? Any last pieces of wisdom before we wrap this up? Absolutely. Wow. I don't even know how many years ago this was, is that I made a decision in my life that was probably one of the most profound decisions. And it's all connected to the mindset, one's attitude, my heart set, however you want to word it, is that I said to myself, no more bad days, no more bad days, only challenging moments. And so folks, while again, I'm not minimizing anything that you are going through, and I don't think you should minimize anything that someone else might be going through, is that those are moments. And so what I've decided to do in my life when I made this decision, I said, oh, do I have moments of anger and frustration and sadness and depression and whatever it may be? Oh, absolutely. Have those moments each and every day. I said, wow, it's because of this powerful force of gratitude that I am never, ever going to allow a full day to go by in which I say that was a bad day. Challenging moment? Absolutely. But uh, a bad day? Never. Never again. So I begin my day with gratitude, no matter how the forecast looks inside or out of my life, is that uh, I will identify at least 12, that's my lucky number, 12 things for which I'm grateful, and then get on with my day, try to flood my life as much as possible with gratitude, with this almost like every experience that I have. And that's that's the journey. That's a work in progress. And then before my head hits the pillow, no matter how trying or, or how difficult, challenging that day was, I will find at least 12 things for which I am grateful before my head hits the pillow. And Bianca, when I tell you that before my head hits the pillow tonight, I will be giving gratitude to you 
and Pirate's Eye and my wonderful Seton Hall family for giving this me this opportunity to share this these experiences, hopefully this wisdom that could be a game changer, a life changer in someone's life. So uh, thank you for that. Scott, I am also grateful. Again, once again, energized. I'm I'm ready to take on the day after this conversation. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Scott is one of more than 100,000 alumni who demonstrate what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. And you heard Scott and I mention in this episode, Seton Hall Giving Day. On April 20th through the 21st, you and every proud pirate listening right now will have an opportunity to join thousands of others in demonstrating what it means to be part of this one Seton Hall community that stretches far and wide. Visit www.shu.edu slash giving day to learn more about the initiative, the ways you can get involved, and to make your gift of any amount. Seton Hall is counting on us, the pirate community, to make this giving day a success in support of our current and future pirates. Remember to stay up to date with all of Seton Hall's alumni engagement opportunities and to view recordings of past virtual events that you may have missed, visit www.shu.edu slash hall hub. Share the news of this podcast with your friends. Be sure to follow us on social media at Seton Hall alumni. And of course, if you know of a pirate we should have our eye on, do not hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye podcast.